Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Hear now the word of, of the Lord. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 32 is referred to as a, a masculine of David, and we don't know exactly what a masculine is. It's probably a type of song. Uh, now, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translated this for David himself, for understanding. And when you think about what Psalm 32 is doing, that's actually a pretty good way of putting it. Because the, the central exhortation to us in Psalm 32 is that we not be like the horse or mule that has no understanding. The, the horse and the mule do not distinguish between good and evil because they don't think about good and evil. They don't think about how to love God with all their hearts. What does it mean to have understanding? Well, Augustine reflects on this by saying, the first stage of understanding is to recognize that you are a sinner. The second stage of understanding is that when, having received the gift of faith, you begin to do good by choosing to love. And you attribute this not to your own powers, but to the grace of God. There's a way in which Psalm 32 is capturing this in those two parts of understanding, recognizing that you're a sinner and then choosing to do good and recognizing that this is itself the gift of God's grace. And it's and Psalm 32 does this not in the form of a prayer. Most of our psalms that we've seen in book one, most have been focused as prayers addressed to the Lord. But rather, this is a song of instruction. This is a song where the psalmist is, is speaking uh, mostly to us and talking about both himself and then turning to us and saying, and here I'm now exhorting you to be like this too. It's, it's actually something, uh, sometimes, sometimes I've heard people say, oh, you know, in our, in our songs, we ought to be praising God. Our focus should be, we should be, we're talking to God in our songs. Well, it's worth saying, there are some psalms where we talk to each other. So it's okay to talk to each other in our singing uh, because after all, Paul says to sing to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's, it's, there's both the horizontal part of how we sing as we're encouraging each other, and then also the vertical as we speak to God. 
Now, this song of instruction, however, the voice keeps changing. You may have noticed this as we read. Verses 1 and 2 are in the, the third person. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It's talking about this, this third person, this one, this man. Verses 3 to 7 then shift to the first person addressing God as you. And then verses 8 and 9 stay in the first person, but now he changes the addressee. He's not talking to you, O Lord. He's talking to you, those who are listening, those who are hearing this song. And then in verses 10 and 11, he exhorts you, and now you are the righteous who hear and believe and trust in what he has been saying. We've been seeing as we go through book one that the book one of the Psalms portrays a world in which the king is sitting on the throne and yet things are not as they should be. And as Psalm 32 points out, we are not what we should be. The Lord's anointed in book one is the one who must ascend the hill of the Lord to dwell at God's right hand. And because this has happened in our Lord Jesus, Jesus now sits at God's right hand. The king is on the throne. In a sense, we live in book one of the Psalms. The king is sitting on the throne. And yet, when we look around, the world is not as it should be. And when we look inside, we are not as we should be. But because Jesus sits at God's right hand, we who sing these songs with him have confidence because we do wait upon the Lord who has not just promised that he would come, but who has come in the flesh in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our New Testament lesson comes from Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, hear now the word of the Lord. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteous, righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in, in Romans 4, Paul is showing the importance of justification by faith apart from works. How does Abraham become right with God? I mean, Paul's interested in the question, how do we become right with God? But now he uses Abraham as the example. And Paul says that if Abraham was justified by works, then he'd have something to boast about. But even then not before God. He could boast to us about how good he was compared to us. But Paul says, but not before God. Think about what Paul's doing here. Paul is saying that even if Abraham could have been justified by works, in other words, he's not going to debate that question, but even if he could be justified by works, he would still not have grounds for boasting before God. Now, what's Paul doing here? In Jewish tradition, Abraham was viewed as being perfect. I know sometimes when you're reading Genesis, you're probably saying, uh, they thought that was perfect. Okay, well, that's a, different, that's, a, that's a different conversation. Jewish rabbis would have told you Abraham was a perfect man. And Paul decides not to dispute this. He doesn't try to say, I mean, you and I would probably go to the rabbis and say, ah, oh, rabbi, you're all wrong. Abraham was a sinner too. Does Paul say that? No. Sometimes we start by trying to prove that question. But in, even in Romans, Paul doesn't, I mean, he, he just assumes that everyone is a sinner. He, everyone knows that they're a sinner. In Romans 1 and 2, everyone knows God. Everyone knows that God is just. Everyone knows they have sinned against God. So Paul's like, I don't need to prove this. Everybody already knows this. So when he deals with Abraham, the one whom the Jews viewed as the perfect example of law-keeping. Paul doesn't say, ah, oh, he was a sinner too. He actually points to Genesis 15, verse 6, and says, Abraham was not justified by works. Read Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, how was Abraham justified? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So, what Paul's argument is, is that if the most righteous man who ever lived on the face of the earth was justified by faith, just who do you think you are? You, I mean, talking to Jews especially, you think you're better than Father Abraham? 
oh my goodness, have we got to have a conversation here. No Jew would ever claim to be greater than Father Abraham. If the father of all who believe was justified by faith, how could we possibly be justified in any other way? And then Paul quotes the opening lines from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It, it's worth noting that uh, Paul's using the, the Septuagint translation, which uh, uses a plural, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I'd actually suggest Paul's, Paul's viewing Abraham in, that, in this context as sort of the blessed man, and he's then viewing all of us as those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. So he is, I think he is actually hinting that yeah, yeah, Abraham was a sinner like us, but that's not his point. Because the, and this theme of the the blessed man is one that we've seen in Book One, and but it's it's been a little while because it was used in Psalm One, "Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the of the ungodly," and then in Psalm Two, "Blessed are those plural who trust in the Lord's anointed." And now we've gone thirty psalms without hearing "Blessed is the man." Or blessed is the one. Now, in this last section of book one, we're going to hear it not quite every week, but pretty close to it. Psalm 32, we get it twice. Psalm 33, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Psalm 34, blessed is the man who trusts in him. Psalm 40, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Psalm 41, blessed is the one who considers the poor. This theme from the opening of book one is now going to come back at the end of book one and be our central theme of what does it mean to be the blessed man? What does it mean to be the blessed people? What does it mean to be blessed? Because Psalm 32 opens by declaring the blessedness of the one whose sins are forgiven. Psalm 1 had said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but we have walked in the counsel of the ungodly. We have listened to the voice of folly. We have transgressed the commandments of God. How can there be a blessing for the one who has sinned? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. God is the one who forgives sins. He is the one who covers our sins. It's worth noting in, in verse 5, David will use the same word when he says, My sin I have not hid. My sin I have not covered. Same word for covering. I can't cover my sin. I can't make it go away. If I pretend it doesn't exist, it will only get worse. I can't cover my sin. I mean, what is it that always gets the bigwigs in trouble? It's, it's almost never the, the original act. It's the cover-up that gets them in trouble. It's the cover-up. What's our problem? It's, I mean, our sin is, is bad enough, but then we try to cover it. We try to hide it. We try to pretend it's not there. But when God covers my sin... When God covers it, he's not, just, he's not just pretending it doesn't exist. Because this is why he sent Jesus. 
Jesus died for our sins to cover them. It, the theme of atonement is actually very much at the heart of this. In his atoning sacrifice, he covers our sin, not in the sense of covering them up and trying to pretend they didn't happen and make them go away, but in actually forgiving them and cleansing us. He has freely paid for all my sins with his precious blood. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Again, that theme of if I'm trying to cover it up, that's deceit. I'm not being honest. But what is David saying? Well, think about what he says in verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. When I kept silent, I was in agony. I didn't want to repent of my sin. I wanted to hide from God. I wanted to cover my own sin. Just think about what would happen. Um, you know, a bunch of you have, have babies. A few more of you used to have babies. Uh, probably all of you have experienced babies because you were one once. So um, what happens when you're changing a poopy diaper and you're like, you know, it'd be a lot of work to take this diaper and throw it away, so I'm just going to stick it under the bed. Well, you know, pretty soon that poopy diaper is going to stink to high heaven. What do you suppose happens when we try to hide our sins, when we try to uh, avoid dealing with them? They start to stink up the place. And so David says, day and night, your hand was heavy on me. Notice, David doesn't say, my guilty conscience was coming after me. He doesn't even say, Satan, the accuser, was coming after me. No, when, when you try to hide from God and refuse to acknowledge your sin, David says, your hand was heavy on me. Sin, sin doesn't just go away. And God will not let you hide from him. Keeping silent, hoping that it will just go away, won't work. If you keep silent, if you ignore it, it will eat away at you until you waste away. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And so David says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Sometimes we get preoccupied with our sin against each other. Our focus becomes, ah, I've sinned against my friend. I've sinned against so-and-so. And, and, and that becomes our focus. We're trying, to, we're trying to figure out how to make things right. And so we think that the, the solution is to fix things with one another. And if you're, if you're, a, if, if you're a, a fix-it sort, then you get, oh, I can fix this. I can fix that. I but here's the problem. If, if all I see is my sin against you or your sin against me, then I am trapped in a never-ending spiral. But when I see my sin against God, then I see the real problem. There is no solution to sin in the horizontal. It never ends. 
It, it, you just, it just, you, you keep bouncing off each other, you run into each other. You keep, where does it stop? If we're trying to cover our own sin, if we're trying to hide it, it won't work. Even if we're, we're trying to deal with it openly before one another. Ah, oh, well, I mean, what do you see right now going on in our society? You see the, the quest for authenticity, being open, being transparent, being real. How is it working? Is our society so much better now? Because people are being honest with each other. They're telling each other how they feel. Why is it not working? Aren't we being authentic? Aren't we being honest? Aren't we being real? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? But we're not dealing with God. We're not being honest with him. We just keep making a mess of things. But when I see my sin against God, then I see the real problem. And David sees that if I do not see how I have sinned against God, I mean, notice, he doesn't even really get around to talking about dealing with one another in this psalm. The whole focus here is on dealing openly and honestly with God and recognizing my sin, stopping trying to cover my sin against God. I need to deal openly and clearly with God. Jesus shows us this in the parable of the prodigal son. The son, the son when he comes back to his father, says, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Think about the way that's said. I have sinned against heaven. You're like, well, and before you, in front of you. You saw what I did. But he's not saying, I have sinned against you and God saw what I did. It's that I sinned against God and you saw what I did. Even though we might say, oh, but the son's sin was against his father. No, the son sees clearly and rightly, and Jesus says this, I have sinned against heaven and before you. How often do we think of our sin as being primarily against God? I mean, David will go there when, he, when reflecting on his sin uh, before Bathsheba and Uriah and say, against you, you only have I sinned. And readers of Psalm 51 across countless centuries have been like, ah, what on earth is he saying? David committed adultery and murder and somehow... I've only sinned against God. Because David understands. That is my sin. Oh, this has had catastrophic consequences in all sorts of other areas of life. And he has to do it. There's a lot that goes on with that. But he recognizes that his sin is against God. And when we see our sin against God clearly, then that transforms everything else. Because when we think of our sin as being primarily against God... That transforms my repentance. If I'm just focused on making things right with other people, then I never really have to deal with my sin. I can pretend that it's dealt with. But when I deal frankly with God about my sin, <laughs> uh, you can't hide from God. How often, have, how often have we said, well, you know, nobody's watching, or is it a. Nobody's watching? Really? Where do you think God is? You can't pretend before him. If you are wasting away under the withering heat of your sin, then confess your transgression to the Lord. 
David says he finally stopped trying to cover his own iniquity. He had said, blessed is the one whose sin is covered, so long as it is God who covers your iniquity. Stop hiding. Stop trying to cover your tracks. Confess your sins to God. And as John says, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David is is using the language of of sacrifice here. The, The blood of the sacrifice covers our iniquity. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's where the blood of bulls and goats could never fully and finally atone for sin. And that's why our Lord Jesus Christ offered himself as the atoning sacrifice who has come to remove our sin and cover our sin before God. And we are called to, to do this. And Psalm 32, 6 and 7 speaks of what happens to the one who prays in this way. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Confess while there's time. The word translated godly is, is the word chasid, which comes from the word chesed, which is translated steadfast love throughout the, the scriptures. We've, we've heard it often in book one, and even just in the last couple of weeks, we've heard chasid, which is often translated saints or godly. Uh, it's in, in Psalm 30, Verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Or Psalm 31, 23, love the Lord, all you his saints. The idea of the chasid is these are those to whom God has shown chesed. God has shown his steadfast love. He has, he has drawn us to himself. And so because he has shown steadfast love to us, we become those who are characterized by steadfast love. We become those who are godly or saints, which because as God has shown his covenant loyalty to us, we now become characterized by that same loyalty. And, and notice that obviously in Psalm 32, the, the godly is not one without sin. The godly, the chasid, is the one who confesses his sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly, let everyone who is chasid, who is faithful to God's covenant, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. May the, may the godly, may the saints confess their sins at a time when you may be found. And again, as John had said, you know, if we confess our sins, well, remember what he had just said before that. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not, is not in us. So if, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He shows chesed and he is just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we pretend that we are without sin, then we are not godly. The only way to demonstrate godliness is to acknowledge that we are not, is to confess before God. As one ancient commentator put it, he who is displeasing to himself pleases the Lord. And so, David says, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. We heard in Psalm 29 of of the Lord's voice being over the waters, the Lord's voice being over the flood. And in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him because 
he confesses before God. You are a hiding place for me. You, are, you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. We keep seeing in book one these themes of God as our refuge, our hiding place, our sure deliverer. When trouble comes, you may have confidence that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ will hear you when you come to him in faith because he is near to those who seek him. And so now David turns to his hearers and says, now I will instruct you in the way. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This is wisdom language, instruction language. This, the, in, and the, the language of, of the way, in the book of Proverbs, there are two ways. I will teach you the way you should go. It, really, this sounds very much like Proverbs 1 through 9, where the father speaks to his son, teaching him the way of life. And like many Proverbs, verse 9 uses an illustration from the animal kingdom. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Now, I, 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 know, I know a number of people have struggled with this verse because they're like, hold on, horses are really intelligent. Oh, yes, they're really intelligent. This psalm doesn't use the word intelligence. It says understanding. Understanding has to do with discernment, distinguishing. So the animal does not... Uh, does not distinguish between good and evil. The animal does not understand love for God and neighbor. Maybe the animals certainly understand certain, a certain sense of neighbor, but they don't have that sense of, of good and evil, love for God and neighbor. And that's the precise point that David is making. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. The, the animal does not understand the point of what is happening in all of life. This is precisely what God has given to humanity as we are called to be the stewards. We are called to be those who, who are leading and guiding creation. And the problem is, too often, we are not. We ourselves lack understanding. We ourselves are more like brute animals where we, we lose sight of what God is doing and how we are to walk before him. If you lack discernment, if you can't distinguish between good and evil, what happens? Well, if you lack discernment, then, then you won't see anything wrong in what you've done. You won't see your sin. What, what David's saying is, don't be like the horse or mule without understanding which requires bit and bridle. Because if you have understanding, if you have discernment, then you'll see your own sin without God having to go, whack, <laughs> your hand was heavy on me. If you see your own sin, then you can come to God and say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned against you. David teaches you the path of wisdom. Don't be stubborn. Diodor of Tarsus put this well. The, the person with understanding and reason perceives the sin, whereas the one without understanding does not perceive it, not wanting to. The person without understanding doesn't want to know their sin. The person without understanding says, I'd rather not know, that way I can ignore it. How often 
Is that us? How often am I like, I'd just rather not know what my sin was so that way I wouldn't have to deal with it. But David shows us, and I think all of us have experienced this. <laughs> That's a miserable place to live. To, to live where you don't understand your sin, you don't see your sin. What happens if you don't see your sin? Well, you, you're going to keep doing it because that's, you're, not, you're not getting it. There's a reason why we call it mule-headedness. Don't be a stubborn donkey. Learn the path of wisdom. Listen to the voice of David and hear the voice of our Lord Jesus as he calls to us. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. The stubbornness of the mule leads to sorrow. But steadfast love, chesed, surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. When we trust in the Lord, his steadfast love protects us. Notice this is what, is, what makes us chesed, the godly, is when the steadfast love, chesed, of the Lord protects us and guards and guides us. And so be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The psalm comes full circle. When, when I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. I was not singing for joy when I was living in the, trying to cover my own sin and hide from what God was trying to show me. But when I see what God was trying to show me, when I hear his voice, and when I confess to him, then... Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Wait, righteous? We just said we were sinners. Yeah, because those, when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse you of your sin. That means, what do you become when your sin is forgiven? What do you become when your sin is washed away? What do you become when there is nothing held against you anymore? When your sins are not imputed to you, they're not counted against you, but the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. What are you now? The righteous. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And notice, he's not saying... Be glad in your righteousness, O you righteous. No, it's be glad in the Lord. Because he's the one who has done this. In the same way that he's the one who covered your sin, he's the one who is the one in whom you rejoice. You trust in the Lord, not in yourselves, and you are glad in the Lord. You rejoice in him, not in yourselves. Because... We shout for joy because Jesus has done what we could not possibly have done for ourselves. And he has brought us to God and made us fellow heirs with him. So let us give thanks and be glad. Father, we do thank you and praise you and we rejoice because you have been so kind. You did not leave us in you know, wasting away, groaning all day long. You did not remain with your hand heavy upon us, but you sent your son, our Lord Jesus, who came in our flesh, who joined himself to our humanity, that he might join us to you, that we might be made 
partakers of the inheritance of your Son by the grace and the power of your Holy Spirit. And for this, we thank you and praise you, and we ask that you would help us, that you would strengthen us to offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, that we may acknowledge our sin, confess our transgressions to you, that you might forgive us and make us new and clean and your own people. Lord, I pray that, that everyone within the, so- the sound of my voice would believe your promises and trust in your grace and confess their sins knowing that you will forgive and make clean and new all who trust in the Lord. Have mercy for Jesus' sake. Amen.